there is a bit of like the haves and have nots in e-commerce as far as like how much you can invest and pay attention to retention. And I think there's some of the like up and coming brands, maybe like sub 10 million, who as much as they want to invest in retention, it's kind of like they really need to solve acquisition. Hello and welcome to ClickTalk. Every week we'll be hearing from the people making it big in e-commerce. I'm your host, Jason Chappell. Joining me today, I've got Joe Van Senner. Joe is the CEO at Status, or if you're from the UK, Status. And he's given me he's given me like the hardest two names. First of all, his actual surname, and then his company name, just to throw into the mix. But status or status are the customer accounts app for Shopify Plus brands. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. And for the record, I love status. It makes me feel so good. So I wish I could pull off saying that. I like the sound of it. Yeah, we'll work on it after if you like. Yeah, yeah? please. But it, it only occurred to me recently that we were talking, you know, before we hit record about we have a, a, a joint client and... Um, uh, they're in the US and I talk to them about status and he talks to me about status. And then we find ourselves like in meetings and we'll flip where he'll start, he'll anglicize what he says. And I try and, you know, really kind of beef up the, the US aspect of, of what I'm doing. And then we just end up the other way around. So it it's entertaining if nothing, if nothing else. Signs of a good name, I guess, is it has, you know, more conversation around it. I don't know. Well, look, you guys are absolutely killing it right now. Um, and I have had the pleasure of uh, of knowing you, Joe, for a, a little while now. Um, and I mean, I'm probably at the stage where I need to have your uh, brand tattooed on me somewhere with the amount I talk about it um, with merchants out there. For those who don't know, uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about what it is you do. Sure. Well, I think first, you know, Status is at its simplest, a customer accounts app. You install the app, we replace your customer account. And in that, you know, some obvious things come to mind like order management and login and social login, all those elements, uh, a great account experience. But what's really exciting and I think what's really starting to work is all of the things an account could be and all of the ways a customer account can enhance your strategy, whether it's a personalization strategy or retention strategy or a zero party data strategy. What we've realized is when you talk to brands about customer accounts, it really simplifies into a customer's identity. And when you start looking at a customer's identity, it becomes very apparent all of the places on a site that the accounts can support you. Um, every app needs your identity as a shopper. Every marketing tool needs your identity. Your website in ways can use your identity. So it's this really simple concept, replace your customer account, but with this long tail of just awesome potential that um, can be unlocked if a brand does the account strategy right. So that's status in a nutshell. We were, we were talking earlier about personalization. So l let's jump in there because I think so many brands are talking about personalization it seems to be getting a you know an awful lot more sort of airtime than it once did but they're so bad at doing and delivering how why i mean we sort of joke internally that personalization has been promised for the last 10 years in e-commerce 
It's like every it's like it's like Elon Musk and fully autonomous driving. It's like every year it's coming next year. And it really is still not here even today. And so, you know, what's really the problem here? Or I guess maybe first, like what is personalization today? And and at at its best, personalization today is exploiting the latest vulnerability in a device where I learn something about you without you knowing about and then I organize my best sellers in a way that makes you viable. And you take that and you extend it to five or six different areas on the site. And that's personalization today. It's like, I got your IP address. And I think I know it's you. And here's our 10 best sellers. And I think you should have them in this order. And then I get your IP address and I give them to you in a different order. So it's this kind of, it's just fundamentally flawed. And I think everyone knows it, uh, but there really is no good solution. That's not the only problem though, right? Because we have technology that is starting to track us less or allow us to opt out of being tracked. We have, you know, governments uh, and uh, and leaders that are saying that actually we need to be more private than we have ever been. You know, browsers, devices, like everything, you know, is is getting further and further locked down is the way that we combat this through having people signed in? Well, that's kind of the punchline and spoiler alert of what we kind of focus on. But I think that that gets to an important, I guess, like second order problem. First is like the playbook as we built it so far, not good enough. And then second, to everything you've just said, it's only going to get harder from here. And this is one of the questions we sort of ask brands tongue in cheek. It's like, what's your personalization playbook today? And it's like, well, you've been building this playbook in the heyday of customer data. You knew everything about me from my Facebook page and you've learned everything about me through scraping. You've already, you've known me better than you ever will at this moment in time. And if you haven't been able to build your personalization playbook today, how the hell are you going to build it in the future? Because it's, because exactly to your point, you will only know less and less about me as time goes on. And it will all come back into my control about choosing to give you my data. And I think it's, it's at that point where we really have been excited about what customer accounts could become because our fundamental belief is that any data you get about me, you're going to have to ask. And if you start looking at it that way, there isn't, you know, you can certainly invest and take advantage of these sort of like time sensitive vulnerabilities. Um, I don't, you know, there are many of them out there that sort of like scrape your data. Certainly take advantage of them. I'm not here to say you shouldn't. But the reality is like skate to where the puck is going. And it's very clear where it's going. Apple, the big tech overlords, it will make me more and more private with every passing day. And the one thing I always share to and point brands to and in, in, in conversations like this to point people to is iCloud Private Relay. You can Google this feature, iCloud Private Relay, and it will tell you where we're going. It's like the headline is iCloud Private Relay hides your identity and all of your activities so that no one, including Apple, can know who you are or what websites you visit. I have that setting flipped on on my iPhone and I'm a ghost on, on all e-commerce brand sites right now. And so that's a, that's a premium hidden beta feature. What happens in iOS 19 when it's a default? And are you ready for that? I mean, if that hasn't lit a fire under all the brands out there right now, then like there's a warning for you that it's never going to be easier than it is right now to capitalize on that data. But in order to future-proof for yourself, you're going to need to start getting people in, signed in now. You know, there, there needs to be that, almost that consent now that you can start doing these things so that you can leverage that. Because if you're asking people in the future, you kind of missed the boat 
in that respect. You're like you were saying, Joe. You're you're going to have to ask people for that information. Whereas right now, you probably already have it or can get it. And if you're not doing it now, then life's about to get real hard, real fast. It is, and we've seen this pattern. I hate. I've said this a couple of times, but I, I I hate ever talking or building a startup and ever comparing anything to Facebook. But there was a trend with the Facebook app, the Facebook, this whole notion of social network, where you would give Facebook this piece of information about me. I love American football. And then my feed would start to change. And I would all of a sudden get more football. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was great. Like I also love golf. And now my feed would change and I'd get golf. And then it's like, oh, I also love this, that, and the other thing. And so there was this very like tangible reward for giving a piece of personally identifying information that would make my experience better. And what did we do for five years? We told Facebook everything about us and it made our feed better. Well, then the feed starts to change and then data leaks happen. And then you realize that they're actually abusing this data. And then, you know, it all becomes ads and, it, and sort of the Facebook feed deteriorated. And so what did we do? We pulled all of our data back and we locked everything down and we were private again. So We've seen this play out before. And I, and I always bring that up because now when you look at e-commerce, you're going to run into that same world where it's not so much like, here's a list of all of these things and can you tell me everything about you? It's how do I get your size information before you buy and make the shopping experience better? How do I understand what your favorite color is before you buy and then make your shopping experience better? And if you do that, people will start to tell you more and more and more. So it's not all doom and gloom. There is a playbook out there. We just have to be good stewards of the customer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and... You you have a, a bit of an experiment, you know, like a thought experiment that you run, right? You know, in terms of like what would people do if they knew a hundred percent of their visitors would be signed in? Would they do what they're doing differently? That's always the fun question. That's that's when I think it clicks for people. It's it's certainly an exaggeration. This idea of getting a hundred percent of sessions signed in, you know, that in that world, it's it's very unlikely that you'll ever get. But the reason I always like to ramp it up to 100 and just kind of like dial up the saturation on this question, it's like, imagine how you'd spend your website development budget or your marketing budget if 100% of sessions were signed in. And what would you do? And, um, you know, you would, you would change the nav bar to whatever the person's favorite color is. You'd pre-select, you know, my size of extra large in every variant that's in stock and then reorder your collection pages. You know, so there's just like, and you, but the point of the question is you ask and people's minds just kind of go crazy. They're like, oh my God, I do this one awesome thing that I've been sitting on for the last three years. And if only my boss or my brand would say yes, it would, wouldn't it be so cool? And um, that question just leads to so many, wouldn't it be so cool tactics? And what you realize is that they are totally possible when someone says it. And so it's a really fun question to kind of jam on with, with the e-commerce community. Hey, look, I do a very similar thing. Like I have a lot of people reaching out to me and talking about conversion rate. And I I ask a very similar thing and I, I amp it up to 100%. Like, okay, if your conversion rate was 100%, what would that look like? Like, are you happy with the money you're making? Are you happy with all of these things? Like, is there a reason you're chasing this particular rabbit? Because the likelihood is, you know, like you're saying, you probably never get 100% of people signed in. But you'll never hit 100% conversion rate. But if you did, what does it look like? Would you change what you're doing based on that? Well, yeah, you would, right? Like to your point, yep. you know, all of those all of those things that are 
wouldn't it be cool if start to become a reality and and all of a sudden people's perceptions change around well okay even if we did 20 percent 10 percent like how does that change our model how does that change how we market how we communicate how we sell our profit margins how much money does that make you know all of these conversations then start to happen and they're good conversations that people should be having rather than how do I increase my conversion rate by 1%? How do I increase average order value by five bucks? How do I, you know, do all of these things? Actually, being able to completely cater to an individual's needs at scale is huge. It's huge. Like, you're, you're seeing, you've seen a ton of people sign up recently like I saw some crazy stat that you'd put out. When was it? Is it in October where you'd put some some crazy, crazy stat out saying you have signed up more brands in the last, what, six weeks than you did in the whole first 12 months or something yeah, that's of, right. of the business. So things are coming towards you. What, what are these brands doing and how are they leveraging status so that they're winning? Because these are the brands in my mind who are visionary. Like they, they can see what's happening and they're investing. And by the way, it's not a huge investment. You know, so, no, so for those brands who are on the fence, it's, it's not a big investment. It will be at this time next year, but I haven't figured out. <laughs> Take advantage of our lack of experience. Um, yeah, well, I think like there was a couple things that started to click in the last six months where we got really good to find out what motivates a brand. And usually the, it came down to like two questions. One is I would start asking in the last six months, what about your retention playbook is working today? What are the things you've already invested in that you're really proud of or that you really like? And the answers were a bit uninspiring, but not for anyone's fault. It just kind of is the state of retention today. It's a, I've got a points program and I send email and SMS. And I say, okay, great. Well, you know, how are you improving those targets? And so people would start to first put on the very professional answer. Like I'm doing X, I'm doing Y, I'm doing Z. But when you get into like the weeds of like a CRM manager or a true retention marketer at these companies, they're like, I'm trying to send more emails. My KPIs are really dependent on how many emails I can send and how frequently I can send them and how high they convert. And it's, it really all comes down to email. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, so you all have this like problem. One is, um, you need, you need another pillar of your retention strategy. It's like there's this missing link of a points program and just sending emails that, that we can help with, that your accounts can help with. And then the second is we need to help you send better emails. And so I think what's really started to click and why we've had this kind of rush going into Q4 is brands are realizing if they invest in their accounts now, if I put accounts in before the Q4 rush, and the way we talk about the Q4 rush, it's like 40% of revenue, 60% of that revenue is going to be first-time customers. And 95% of those first-time customers are about to check out as guests. That story is what's really started to click in September and October, where people are realizing like, okay, this will add a new pillar to my retention. It will give me new things to talk about via email. And it's time sensitive. I need to get these customers signed in now because I'm not going to have this rush of traffic until next year. And if I wait till January, it's too late. So all of those forces kind of played in where brands were really just excited to put this in place now. Now, it's not just about post-purchase in that respect. 
Like that's where the magic happens, right? But you guys are, are, are collecting and retaining data all the way up until that purchase point and beyond, right? So when somebody's placed an order and they come back in, they come back because they inevitably come back because they want to check their shipping or, you know, any of those sorts of things. There's, there's stats out there that say people come back like six times or something after they've placed an order um, before before it arrives with them, usually just to check on the shipping status uh, and those sorts of things. You've got data from from their browsing prior to this, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. We've we invested a lot of time and invest a lot of money in our databases. It's no small feat for a small tech team, uh, but we have we've invested a lot to create anonymous track. And what we do is we just like any tool, really, is we track an anonymous session, and we learn what you click and what you put in your cart, and then we just sort of temporarily hold this data inside of an account. And whose account is it? You know, it's yours, but it doesn't really exist yet. And then throughout the post-purchase experience, we sort of wait and we ask. We say, hey, do you want to activate your account um, either by tracking or returning or viewing a subscription, viewing your rewards points, any of these entry points, as we call them. If you use them, we then bind it to the anonymous session. And so every visitor who checks out as guests, we let them check out as guests. Any visitor who checks out as guest actually has this very robust customer account waiting for them if only they activate it post-purchase. And that's been a very, uh, it's a very important detail to get right as you think about a retention strategy. It's like, how do you how do you carry through the 20 products you clicked in your first session and the four that you put in your cart and deleted and then bind it to the one product you bought? And if you can do that successfully, that's a great retention foundation. See, because this is amazing because so many things in life are dependent on the end user or the consumer changing their behavior. Think like recycling, think plastic bottles, you know, water bottles versus, you know, there you go. Joe's sitting here. He's drinking out of a, a, a metal cup. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that's like cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> One. <laughs> uh, I'm not buying it. I can't see through, through the wall of the, the container. So. Um, but all of these things require the end user to change their behavior and make a decision themselves. Whereas this lets them behave how they want to behave. You know, they want to check out as guests. You're going to let them check out as guests. You're not going to force them, you know, that they have to hand over their email address or, or anything like that. But then you can take advantage from the brand's perspective to get them to come back and, and log in again, just playing on their, their, their behavior. But, and I say that's to the brand's advantage. It's actually to the consumer's advantage as well, because, Hey, all of a sudden we can start to surface products that are relevant and you don't have to go through our 3000 SKUs to find what it is you're looking for. You've already found it and we're just playing it back to you. You know, there's, there's no kind of like dirty tricks at play or anything like that. It's just a case of, hey, you did these things and we're we're gonna play that back to you. That is magical. And brands need to be switched on to this, you know, because that changing consumer behavior is so hard. It's so hard, you know, and, and getting people to change their habits especially now like if we look at like global socio-economic landscape things are getting tough 
you know, you, you, you were talking about a huge amount of debt, you student student loan debt or something like that, that is going to play a play a big part moving forwards. Talk to me about that. This gets into some of our personal narratives as we're building a startup, which is obviously uh, in a startup in a small team, you're exposed more more so to the market than you are in a big company. And so we have to have these kind of recurring conversations about the greater you know, e-commerce industry and why are we still confident or why are we still bullish? And if things get hard, where will they get hard first and avoid those, right? So these are the conversations we have to have more frequently as a startup. And the one that we talk about a lot, that's sort of been this kind of overlooked detail is in the United States, I think it is likely true elsewhere throughout the world, but certainly in the United States, there is a whole pile of student loan debt coming due. It actually just came due last month for the very first time. And so we start looking at this like trend. We're going into Q4, it's the e-commerce Super Bowl. Everyone's worried about a recession. And then we see this kind of hidden monster, which is $100 billion a year of student loan debt that comes due in the United States. Um, for the first time in three years. So what we have is this kind of rush of e-com that we've all been a part of for the last three years. And this hidden monster, which is it hasn't existed alongside student loan debt. So what does that mean? And what's the impact? How do we know if it's going to make a difference? And what we look at is then total Shopify GMV. And so the total Shopify GMV in 2022 was 200 billion. So now you have 200 billion, all the e-commerce transactions in the world on Shopify. And then in just in the United States, $100 billion of new student loan debt that comes due. And so all you're doing now is like this simple willingness to pay exercise where you're like, oh my gosh, like half of, in theory, half of Shopify's GMV is tied up in student loan payments. And we're going to see the impact of that for the first time in the next 11 months. And so how do we, how do we adapt to that? How do, you, how do you build a resilient brand in that environment? How do you build a resilient app in that environment? Um, these are really important questions that I think are just starting to come to light. We we don't know the impact. And most of those people that are spending on Shopify fall into exactly the same range as most of those people who are carrying student loan debt. Yeah, it's like the same people who don't know the latest, coolest Shopify brand that's trending are the same people who say, I work minimum wage jobs to pay for college. They don't really have the same awareness, right? It's like your parents and grandparents who say college is affordable and I, I've never heard of 10,000 or I've never heard of college right? And then you've got everyone who loves these kind of trendy cutting edge brands that aren't quite as popular as a department store brand, but really cool nonetheless, is the same demographic of people who've been hosed and kind of run over the coals on student loan debt. So it's like even more pointed of a problem um, that I think, yeah, you really have to like get into the mind of these consumers more so than you ever had to in the past. We, we played like the ad arbitrage game. Everyone knows this. We played like ad arbitrage on Facebook, like buy an ad, click measure conversion rate. And that was the playbook. We need to sort of revert to the old school psychological understanding of how you advertise and how you market to these customers because their world is changing. E-commerce is changing, sure, but the shopper's world is changing too. And, and how do you adapt to that? Well, and, and there's that question around, well, what do people start cutting when inflation is high and wages and salaries you know, aren't following that? Interest rates are the highest they've been for... 20 years or you know whatever that 15 years and i mean right now they're they're on a par with each other in in the uk and the us you know we're we're both north of five percent which we haven't seen for a long long time 
people are, are going to have to start making some tough decisions about what's important and where they spend their money, right? Where, where, where do you see that playing out? So we look at, we look, you know, there's a, there's a few elements, to, a few layers to this because we, we have a lot of fun as a product organization, if you look at us that way, as a product-minded team. Um, we're really like the first order thing we say is, um, well, we're an identity product. And so, you know, if, the, if we boil it all down, like we get people logged in, we're an identity product. Okay, great. So um, what products that people buy outside of software, what products as in, you know, footwear or lotion or cereal or whatever, what products reflect someone's identity? And so like, can we use this sort of framework, uh, you know, this sort of like relation to identity on, as far as like sign in and identity as a shopper to help us make better decisions? Because what we're trying to do is say, well, well, what is the best way to build an identity product in a market where where 50% of GMV might disappear next year? Obviously won't, but in the worst case scenario, 50% of Shopify's GMV disappears next year. And so we focus on identity. We say, well, we're an identity product. We must focus on identity as we solve this problem as well. And so we say, okay, well, where is consumer spending going to get cut first? Where is that $100 billion drop-off going to happen? And we really break it down to two sides of the market online. And it's one, things that reflect who I am. And our opinion, our belief on that is the things that reflect who you are, are things that you put on your body. Now this might be makeup, it might be clothes, it might be shoes, you know, it might be at jewelry and accessories, but these are things that you attach to yourself in order to project who you are and what I care about and my interests and my style and you know, who my potential mate should be in life are all these things that I, it's, they matter to me most. And so our big belief then was like, okay, well, we need to be investing our product and pointing our road at an industry, at a product category that reflects the consumer's identity. Because ultimately that's what we're asking for, right? It's like, you reveal your identity to us, so we're going to invest in things that reveal your identity to you. And so one of the consequences of this and some of our kind of spicy takes comes from when people ask us, I'm kind of revealing this for the first time, so sorry world, but... Um, when people really ask us to like invest in the subscription experience, they're like, man, like you guys would be perfect for a subscription brand because subscriptions are so tightly wound into accounts. And we have this core belief internally where it's like, actually, we don't, you know, we, we will work with them and we, and we certainly do, but that's not where our roadmap's headed um, because subscriptions are ultimately things that you don't put on your body. They're things that you put in the cupboard. They're things that live inside your bathroom, inside your pantry, inside a cupboard somewhere, stashed inside your house. And if you have a party and invite all these people that you want to impress, no one's looking at them. No one cares that you spent over, overpaid for lotion. No one cares that you overpaid for Magic Spoon cereal. And that's really all we're seeing there is like this kind of overpriced commodity that is most at risk. Do you know what? I'm completely with you on that. And I'm on the fence about subscriptions. Like I, I, I see why they're attractive. And especially from a brand perspective, I see why they're they're attractive you know there's predictable revenue and and all of those things but from a consumer perspective i don't get it you know i i don't i don't have anything anything on subscription you know like that i don't have products delivered to my house like that you know when i need coffee i go and buy coffee and maybe maybe like i'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to things like that but i i don't really feel that it serves the consumer that well it can it serves them from a convenience perspective but when we layer in the accounts piece subscriptions always like set and forget approach Correct. you know rather than encouraging people to come back 
and shop, you know, and, and, and shopping, you know, I'm using the term meaning browse and, you know, all, okay. all of those sorts of things. That's when that becomes important that I'm signed in, that I'm receiving personalization. If I want to go and manage my subscription, I can, I can log in and I probably go by like a recharge portal or a bulb portal or, you know, whoever people are using and I can handle it there and I can pause it. I can cancel it. I can skip it. You know, I, yeah. I can do all of those things, but very seldom am I recommended anything else. You know, it's just okay. So, how do I manage this one item in a vacuum from everything else? You know, completely siloed. And then, how do I get back to doing the million and one other things that I need to do in my day, rather than spending time experiencing something? You know, that's that's a management play. Yeah. Well, we see this too, and this is why we take we kind of have to take a principled approach to accounts and identity because you can't just you start to see the incentives uh, both with an app and with a brand and with the shopper and then when you do identity you have to get those right and, and the reason why it becomes important with subscriptions is when you look at the incentives of subscriptions and then status or any accounts app comes into the picture what ends up happening is you have a brand that says i want more subscriptions okay great and subscriptions require login okay great so let's focus my account on subscriptions. Okay, wait a minute, let's check this out because let's look at the incentives for a customer. And when you look at the incentive for a customer, any guess why a customer comes looking for their account to manage a subscription? It's to cancel or pause. And so you kind of find this like misaligned incentives where you say, well, let's make subscriptions the core of a great identity strategy on my site and anchor my accounts around that. But it's really just missing the point of why a customer would use that space. So it is, it's like, a, it's a sensitive topic and one that I think the market and status included is kind of figuring out as we go, how is this all going to work together? I mean, whilst we're talking about subscriptions, I think, I feel that those brands that are modeling their, their finances and, and planning their 2024s based off their current subscription levels, um, they're in a really dangerous place. Because yeah. as a as a consumer, I can cancel my subscription what like three days or something before it renews. And let's say for you know for brown numbers, you're doing a uh, million dollars a month, you know, in subscriptions. Well, how many of those do you need to lose at that point to be in trouble to be massively overstocked because you are expecting for, to fulfil a huge number of of subscriptions that didn't happen how many chargebacks happen because people get it wrong or forget to cancel or they've taken the advantage of the discount that people uh incentivize you know on the subscription side of things and then and then cancel um i i think they're in a really precarious place um and you know i guess you know word of warning to all those brands out there that it's great to be able to forecast those numbers but actually the reality is you're maybe a month ahead of where the brands who aren't running subscription are, but no more, you're not six, 12 months ahead. Um, you know, and I think getting people back to the store is the most valuable thing, you know, that, that we can do. I talk a lot with my clients about 
actually I'm, I'm happier to accept a lower average order value if I can have somebody shopping more frequently, if I can have yes. them returning and spending more money because actually they come back and they need something else rather than trying to sell them everything in one transaction and then I don't see them again for six, six, 12 months. You know, I would much rather accept a lower AOV and have them, have them return. And then the beauty is, you know, if you start using status, like one of my clients has, you have people returning and all of a sudden you can start surfacing things that you know that they're interested in or replenishables because you know that actually based on their order history, their consumption rate is X. So they don't have to go searching for those things. They don't have to look. They can just find it, add it to their cart, check out. That's cool. I don't need to sell them anything and everything, but I'm going to, I'm going to show them other things they might be interested in, you know, and, and open them up. And then that really plays into, like you were saying at the beginning, that whole retention strategy, all of a sudden my, my Clavio flows and, and my email marketing becomes infinitely more valuable because I know exactly what this, re, you know, person is responding to. And, you know, I can, I can start hitting them at times that are relevant for them. You might want an email every day. I might want an email every week. Finding those finding those differences and being able to cater to them is really where the magic happens. And that's, I guess, so it's not all doom and gloom for subscriptions because what you are talking about is exactly the way we position status for subscriptions. But most brands will come to us and say, my subscription rate is 30%. 30% of orders And I really want to get it to 35 or I really want to get it to 40%, you know, and it's like, okay, well, you wouldn't work with us. We'll certainly integrate with your subscription and we'll get more people signed in and we'll make the experience so much easier. But the important part to acknowledge when working with status is that 70% of your customers aren't on subscription. And so what's your plan for them? We'll get them on subscription. Okay, well, don't hire us for that. The 70% who aren't on subscription are still shopping, are still browsing, are still replenishing. They're just doing it without an auto, an automatic motion. And so we invest in things like buy it again easy order management and like automatic buttons that refill carts. So there is still a great playbook there for a subscription brand out status. It's just not what you'd think at first glance. So Joe, where, what is the future for signed in shopping? Because this really is in its infancy in terms of adoption, you know, and awareness. Where are we headed? Well, I think the first thing that will happen is uh, the value of sign-in, the easy the easy wins of sign-in are going to become very apparent. And so like one example I always love to share is the value of sign-in, particularly with a return and your rewards program. And so the first thing that's going to happen is everyone's going to realize if you get a return signed in, you've just converted that return into a rewards member. You've just given them 100 points. And now you can email them and say, hey, sorry that the first order didn't work out. Can we win you back? Here's 100 points. There's many examples of that that are possible when someone gets signed in. And I think first and foremost, that layer of e-com is going to wake up, that all of us can work together with one customer identity and solve these massive problems together. But in the future, and where this is going is um, a bit more, well, I guess unclear, but I guess that's the nature of any prediction. It's by definition unclear. I will hold you to all of these. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back. We'll, we'll take a listen to this in 12 months' time, and we'll, we'll yeah. see how right Joe was. I think, the, I think the most interesting future of sign-in is um, a conversation that I have with Shopify. 
Shopify our partner and Shopify the platform is, is the reality of like login and sign in is identity and identity is wallet and wallet. And so how does that play out? How do we actually bridge this gap of like the only way anyone ever thought of identity was checkout? Sign in at checkout. That is going to change. That, that's probably going to be the second thing that changes. First is like very easy, easy wins, returns and rewards better together with sign in. But the bigger picture here is like you've only ever asked people to sign in at checkout. And so now you start thinking about identity happening all throughout the shopping experience and all the different ways that'll change. And then how that ties back to checkout. It's where it's really going to get interesting. You know, you have Shop Pay, you have PayPal, you have Apple Pay, Google Pay. Like imagine if Shop Pay, PayPal, Apple Pay, and Google Pay were competing for your sign-in when you created a wish list. That's where it starts to get really interesting. That is really interesting. I mean, that throws up another question though. Who owns the customer relationship and who owns the data? Because that, you know, th this is now like really murky. Oh gosh, I wish I had the answer to that. I'll say it's, a, it's another one of those prompts that just really get the e-commerce the e industry thinking in the right way. Um, there isn't a clear answer. That's the first, first and foremost, but um, I think there kind of should be. But the fact that there isn't just re reveals kind of the state of things. Who owns the customer? Who owns the customer relationship? Um, you know, is it Facebook who acquired them first and then gave so graciously gave them to you as the brand through an app? Like, does Facebook own that? Or is it, you know, Amazon that ships the product out of the warehouse and, you know, owns the buy button? Do they, do they own the customers, the shop app? You know, and I think where it's the reason why I think it's becoming more pointed um, as far as like who owns the customer. Because I think when it was platforms and advertisers and brands, things were fine. But where it started to get a little more interesting is when apps really blew up. Um, where VCs come into the app game and they start pumping these apps full of capital for these very ambitious roadmaps. And then you, we're starting to see the consequence of this. We're like, I love all these companies and we integrate with all of them, but it's like Klaviyo wants to be the CDP. Yapo wants to be the CDP. Otendo wants to be the CDP. And each of these apps are basically coming to the table for each of these brands saying, well, we own this. And I think it's just... It, I don't have an answer, but it, but, I, but I think what we all need to kind of remember as an app provider is that the brand owns the customer. It's the brand's product that's going on this customer's body. Like they own that relationship. Like this, you know, this, I, it's me and the brand. I don't care about status. <laughs> Thanks for helping me manage this shirt. Um, no, I don't care about Yahoo or Clavy or anybody. Um, I hardly even know the platform, Shopify, but I certainly know the brand. I certainly know that 10,000 powers me when I'm working out, you know, and I think um, we're losing the script on that a little bit. Um, and I would, yeah. And, and do you know what? I, I think you're so right because as, as a consumer, I mean, I do it because I'm a nerd, but when I'm on people's stores, I generally don't look at the technology behind it. I don't think, I, I mean, I do, but I don't think Joe Public generally does that. They go on there nope. and they're like, what's my customer experience like? What's the product like? And then how quickly or otherwise can I get it? You know, because delivery plays a huge part in this. Um, that can reflect really well or really poorly on a brand. And the brands don't own that aspect of it, but it still reflects on them. But they are so reliant on all the technology and everything else. But the consumer doesn't care that they check you know that, that they were shopping on a shopify store and that their 
all their emails have been delivered by Clavio and then they got an attentive SMS. They don't care. It was just, what was my experience like? Was it uh, as frictionless as, as possible? I mean, don't get me wrong. Yep. Some, some friction can be positive, but how, how did I experience this brand? And then what's the product like? And that all sits with the brand. Everybody else takes a backseat, you know, to that. Um, and as long as you're empowering that, then, uh, you know, from an app perspective, you're winning, right? You know, if, if you're able to, to empower brands, then that's a win. Yeah, because I think that the, the, it's becoming more clear now as the game, the broader like e-commerce game gets harder. But, you know, before it was like, here's an ad budget, here's the click-through rates, here's conversion rates, great, and there's success. But I think what we're all sort of waking up to now is many of these brands aren't profitable until the second version. So you acquire me, that cost has gone up, and I make an order and you try to get my cart as big as you can, but woe is you, my cart is small. So therefore, I'm not even a profitable customer for you until I make my second and let's say that's becoming more prevalent, right? It's like, okay, well, the average first-time customer is not, it's not a profitable order. And so that I, I must get them to the second as efficiently as possible. So then you, and then you look at carts and checkouts and it's like, and again, no offense to all these partners. I love all of you. It's just, this is sort of the state of e-com here is like inside the cart of an unprofitable first customer is like shipping protection powered by X, fertilization powered by Y, like tracking powered by Z and come to download this third-party app and come, and it's like, so, you know, there almost seems to be like an advocate for the brand stepping in saying like, you need to lock down this owned channel and you can't let other people come in because even if it's one or 2% of first time customers download the status app and you can manage all of your wish list across any brand, that's, it's going to crush you. And you really, you have to have a draw a hard line on this. It's your customer, it's your order and you're not profitable yet. So don't take your eye off the ball. Anyway, profitability is such a, a key point right now i think it, it it's probably never been more poignant because i think we only have to roll back a few years and everybody was it was easy in the sense that you know you alluded to it earlier you pay facebook ten dollars and facebook delivers you 50 a hundred dollars you know in in sales and well great next time i'm gonna put twenty dollars into facebook you know and and it was simple. It was it was literally that easy. And I think people got really lazy because of it. Because you could just rely on the fact that Facebook and others would deliver customers straight into your store and they would transact and job done. Whereas whereas now you are fighting for every last customer. And I think so many brands allow spend without understanding their data without understanding who they're targeting or how much a customer's worth to them in one transaction how much a customer's worth to them in two three you know and then you play that out over three six twelve month period nobody's looking or very few are looking at what that looks like and still are still looking at well here's my here's my ROAS and it's like that's great but there's no profitability in that, you know. And then in the UK, we have we have a, a different problem in the sense that you're charged VAT on on that, but your sale is inclusive of of tax. And so 
your your ROAS of five to one is actually four to one by the time you take out the twenty percent tax, and then you've got a cash flow problem that is layered in there where you're going to have to be able to claim some of that back from, you know, from the government, and it, it it's it's a mess. It's a mess, but so many people still talk about return on ad spend and this being their kind of north star metric that profitability is never mentioned and they wonder why they struggle because they're looking at the wrong numbers so uh, you know i think having people signed in you then start to know who our best customers are you know okay cool actually you know joe came on and we weren't profitable on our first order from him but he's come back on several times since then and okay he's placed average orders they don't even have to be spectacular but at that point we've spent very little money retaining you and actually now we're in a profitable state what else can we be doing to service you you know as as a customer whereas uh, so really after that first purchase is where the work starts you know you thought it was hard acquiring people you know Yes. you got to you got to double down on on retaining them um whereas i think lots of people still view it as acquisition was the work and then they've come in and they've transacted and now now we're good um you know and it's it's something that i try and work so hard with you know with with my clients to you know just kind of say to them well okay what what are we doing why does this person care about coming back to us because there's a load of other people who are spending heavily to try and acquire them. We know who they are and what they've bought and, and largely what their interests are, or at least we have an idea at this moment in time. How do we use that to our advantage? You know, so everything that you did in acquisition, all the effort that you put in acquisition, let's double that up in, in retention. You know, and, and not only that, the secret to your acquisition actually lies in your retention. You know, you can start to start to mine that data to say okay how do we get more of these people who are profitable and fewer of the people who aren't i mean that in in that sort of transition that i think the market is going through there's like a lot of these other conversations happening and like so let's talk about social right because social being the holy grail of acquisition and then um as you're saying like the work really starts after you get that first order and and even like i'd say more specifically the work really starts once that customer uses your product for the first time like that's actually like, that's the moment, right? And then we start to see these trends with social changing, like people are reporting on dark social, how like so much of your traffic just appears to be direct and it's making it so difficult. And because, you know, that the, the app platforms and the social platforms aren't telling you the traffic. Well, I think even more like less nefarious than that is like word of mouth is number one. Like me telling my friends that I love this shirt, it's a great price is going to drive more sales than an ad popping up into their feeds for the seventh time. And finally just they're like beat down and I click. So that, so really, I mean, like I completely agree that I think brands are starting to realize that, that there's this first touch when you place the order that is really when the work begins. And so what I tell brands when they talk about accounts is one of the, one of the pitfalls you can fall into with accounts is it can do many things. It can be sign in and you can simplify sign in and you could really care about login via SMS because have you used it before on an iPhone? It's the best feature ever. I mean, it's so pretty cool. <laughs> it's, it's cool. But, but the secret is I'm giving away the, all of our future competitors, all of our secrets, but sign in with SMS is a trap because you invest so much time thinking that convenience is what's blocking someone from signing. It is not. 
so so there's like that trap and then there's like wish lists and then there's subscriptions and tracking and returns and data and email there's all of those things what, what we always talk to our brands about is like the only thing that matters in your first two months is get more first-time customers signed in everything else just ignore it all you need to do is go get first-time customers and bring them into this space and once we can prove to you that you can do that now start investing only in what those first-time customers need if it's a wish list, if it's recently viewed, if it's an email offer, if it's points, right? But you really have to simplify accounts and identity into saying, get first-time customers signed in. It's the only thing that matters. And the thing, the beauty, you know, with with what you guys do is once they're they're signed in, they're in for a while, right? They can be they can be in for up to like six months, right? That's right. It's a it's a it's so so what it is out of the gate because we've we've learned more about this as we've observed our tech overlords that control actually control identity. Uh, what it is it's a thirty day rolling window, and so my iPhone let's use iPhone in the United States. I understand that we're you know we, we're bridging the, the the pond here, but I know iPhones in the United States very well. It's a rolling thirty day period, and so if you log in, you're logged in for thirty days, and if you visit again, it resets. If you visit again, it resets. And so what that means is you could stay logged in for the next six months. And it becomes a really important detail when you think about emailing a first-time customer. Because an email will refresh the login, it'll refresh Klaviyo tracking, it keeps them logged in for even more time. So yeah, the login window is an important detail. The, uh, and for me, this is where that magic really starts to happen. Because before you have to start bringing data points together almost manually, they're out there. You know, yes, you can say, okay, cool. People responded to, you know, this email campaign and they, they clicked these these certain things and this is how we did it. But all of a sudden, when you start to personalize that and make it relevant to each individual consumer on an individual basis at scale, then the game changes massively. All of a sudden, you don't have to manually join all those dots. It, it's kind of done for you and then you can start to see like you're saying okay what what's valuable for our customers is it a wish list is it you know any of these things where do we go what do we do you know then then you start to have those conversations about okay cool we've got loyalty in place well what does our retention rate look at uh, redemption rate look like from our loyalty points around these specific customers and are they engaged by it or not and you know that's that's another one i think you know if we if we if we're hating on people but lots of people will set and forget a loyalty program because loyalty check you know we we've right. got it and if they actually look through like how relevant is it to people all of a sudden when you put it in there and you have people logged in you can make it relevant or you're actually you know being signed in gives relevancy to the loyalty program and all of a sudden engages people and actually you know enhances the use of that that loyalty program rather than it just being there and nobody caring because hey you know i, I shared it on instagram or whatever and i got 50 points for it like i don't care but all of a sudden when i'm logged in and Hey, I see I've got these various points and I can redeem them against this product or, Hey, that gives me $10 off or, you know what, all of a sudden I care now as yep. a consumer. So just bringing those data points together, I think is, 
it's hugely beneficial and save people so much time and money and sleepless nights for you know all the founders and everything else who are thinking hey i'm spending out now thousands of dollars on you know all these all these apps that we have in the site that that should be driving increased revenue increased profit but on their own can potentially be doing very little you know this is where this becomes the glue that that binds everything i think this is like a great so on the there's a great use case with points and it, it, you kind of can you can kind of piece together a few of our talking points now we're like what would you do if 100 percent of sessions were signed in okay obviously that's a pie in the sky but now let's like recap like we've just gotten four times more first-time customers so 4x more first-time customers are now logged into your site they're logged in for at least 30 days and as long as six months. And now you've got this rewards program that you've really set it and forget it. What this signed in shop, what, what is signed in shopping? Here it is. Here's one example of where it manifests. Customers don't know what points translate into dollars. They get their calculator out. They figure out, you know, I have 7,226 points and that equals 111, you know, whatever. There's like this calculation. There. And part of the problem is you're only signed in for one day. So you, you sort of deconstruct the problem. You have a loyal, a first-time customer who cares about rewards, but is only signed in for 24 hours and needs to do math to figure out what their points are worth. Let's solve it. We've gotten you signed in. We keep you signed in. Now you can put an element on the site that says $99 or build this into your liquid, $99 or $76 with points. Because we've seen this before. We've seen this with airline apps. It's like $199 or whatever with points, right? 300 points. And you can start to build those things. That's where we should be going. That's like the go back to the future of e-com. All of prices on a site should be reflected of point with points when you're signed. And watch conversion rates, right? Like that's a conversion rate solution for with a side and shopping, you know, angle. Joe, this has been my bugbear such a long time that I've said to people for so long, can we show the points, you know, dollar price or points equivalent? You know, let people let people pay with points. Let, you know. They're there, make it relevant. Also, people's mindset shifts when they think, well, hang on a second, I've got $20 with this brand. It was never their $20, but it feels like it. Like, yeah. well, hang on a second, I've got money sitting in there, which I can't redeem for cash. So I might as well use it. And hey, it, if they're that loyal a customer that they have that many points that they can pay for something outright with points, more power to them. You know, I I, I will happily give those customers a, a, a technically a free product if they've accrued that many loyalty points because they've obviously spent a considerable amount of money. You know, to be able to be able to earn it. It's not it's it's not like the you know the the Pepsi thing where the guy. Uh, collected all of their like ring pulls and and those sorts of things for a pro, you know for a for a harrier jump jet you know this is this is legitimate spending and it's worse because you know or i guess the the problem as we've just defined it is only going to get more complicated because now we're adding cash back and credit and so i so now it's like think about the math you're doing at checkout where you're like okay i've got 400 points and i've got eight dollars in credit given to me from a refund and i need Combine the, you know, it's just like we we really need to reevaluate that whole experience, especially for first time. One hundred percent. So, Joe, what is 
what's coming up next for you? Or maybe maybe a better maybe a better question is, you know, what's just happened to you guys? Have you had anything you know significant just happen? And then then what's in the what's in the roadmap? So you know, debatably significant, I would call it significant in my bubble, but. We, um, we crossed a major milestone where we had over 100 brands and we had the majority of them live for over a year. And so having this like kind of critical mass of accounts data, we released our first ever benchmark report. It shows average sign-in rates and average account performance of apparel, footwear, intimates, all the major categories. So that was like a big moment for us because, you know, the first year, first two years really, um, was all about mastering the on-site experience. How do we actually unlock this like customer accounts don't have any value problem? And so the, the benchmark report is really like the culmination of that era. How do we master accounts and identity on the website? And the benchmark report shows you how we do that. And so that's kind of like what has been in, in our latest milestone. Um, what we're really excited about and where we're headed is probably the most important integration that we haven't had. It's like we've been fighting with one hand tied behind our back this whole time trying to drive ROI. And that's the Klaviyo integration. We've just released our Klaviyo integration. It is in testing. I'm using it. It's sweet. It'll come to you very soon. Um, I, I hope I'm first on that list, right? <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know who the brand is I'm working with. Yeah. Um, it's coming very soon. But but this whole idea of like, how do we extend, how do we not, now that we've, you know, I won't say mastered, but now that we've really laid the foundation of Accounts and identity on the website. How do we now extend accounts and identity into email and SMS? And that's a whole different world because before it's, you know, the only ROI you'll ever get from your account is if someone incidentally finds it on the website. But now it's like, how do you leverage everything you've just done for the last year and bring it into an email and make your email more performant, make click-through rates go up and, you know, consolidate so many of these touch points that you're sending via email. So and we're very excited for Clavio. We're very excited for the email and the future of just accounts and email. Nice. I, I'm excited for that. The, the, the kind of deeper I can get into having signed in shoppers, like I'm there because I think this is the only way that you can truly leverage what we've all been aiming for in terms of personalization, you know, in terms of all of those other pieces of the puzzle that have been around, but we just haven't been able to fit them together. This is, this is for me, it, this is the bit that says, okay, everything else now can plug into and interface and talk to something else because yep we know who that shopper is. That's probably a good place to leave it, Joe. Thank you so much for joining me. Like, I, I mean, I could go on, maybe we'll have to do a, a round two and have you back on and talk in the new year, maybe, uh, you know, post post Q4 uh, and see what's happened with, with your customers who have signed in shoppers. I'd love that. Thanks for having me, Jason. This was fun.